Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Visit our theme on the subject of worship. This is a theme that we have for the year. We're just kind of revisiting this theme throughout the year, learning a little bit more about what it means to worship and all the different ways that we worship. And this morning, I want to start with a question How many of you cannot wait for Monday morning? You can't wait, not for the weekend, but for the weekdays. When you get to go to work, not very many. I didn't see any hands out there. I, I just saw people look down like, this guy's got to be kidding me. Because nobody thinks that way. Uh, for many of us, our attitude towards work is a lot like that of Johnny Paycheck. He had one song that made him famous, one song that I grew up with, listening to country western in the shop with my dad, maybe working on farm machinery, or I'd be working on taxidermy, and he'd be working on some car. He did auto body work, and we listened to country westerns, and one of the songs by Johnny Paycheck was, Take This Job and Shove It. It's, it's a little crass for Sunday morning, but you got to hang in there with me. The lyrics say, take this job and shove it. I'm not working here. I ain't working here no more. The woman done left and took all the reasons I was working for. You better not try to stand in my way as I'm walking out the door. Take this job. Yeah. And he goes on to complain about his boss and all of that. He can't wait for the day when he gets to walk out that door. And... Well, the song's a little crude. It's a very real expression of how most people feel about their work, about their job. And uh, that's a sad way to feel when you spend one-third of your life at work, essentially. One-third of your day at work. Eight of the 24 hours in the day, that's how you feel about it. We spend, I don't know if you know this, but 13 plus solid years of our lives at work. Over 90,000 hours on average. That's a lot of time, isn't it? That's the reason why we define one another sometimes by what we do for a living. But since that's the case, do you really want to spend one-third of your life right now, right? One-third of each day feeling like Johnny Paycheck, as if work is just something negative and we despise it. But again, that's the way most of us feel towards work. I think the current workforce situation right now in our country proves that there's a lot of Johnny Paychecks out there. We don't want to be at work. We don't want to work. And if we do, we can't wait till we're done. And uh, 
in our country today, again, the workforce element, it's like, I mean, just drive down our highway, stretch through town here, look at all the now hiring signs. They've been up since 2020. Everybody's hiring. Arby's has three now hiring signs out <laughs> with flags and everything. Everybody's hiring right now, but no one wants to work. It's interesting. I have several Christian business owners that I pray for, and I ask them, what, if I ask them, how can I pray for you? Their response is, I need good employees. I need people who, who want to work. I, I, I just need more help. So that's a prayer that I've been praying for years for some people, business owners. They need good help. And sometimes when they hire someone, it's, they find out that people don't just want to work. They just want the paycheck. They don't really want to work. I had a, an experience a few years ago where we hired a, a company to install carpet in our house and a couple of bedrooms. And there was an older, experienced gentleman who came out, and he brought a new young hire with him, a young man. And halfway through the job, the old man, the older gentleman, just sent the young new hire home. He didn't want to work. He just wanted to show up. And so he said, okay, you're, you're not coming back for the second half of the day. You're just, you're not working here no more. <laughs> so... The other day I was in the grocery store. There's six of us in line. This is at noon during lunch hour. But there's six of us standing there in line. And the guy is just apologizing to us because he says, I'm all they got right now. I'm all they have at the moment. We don't have any self-checkouts for you to use. So this is a, a problematic thing in our country right now. Think about the jackpot, too, the lottery. The jackpot right now is right around a billion dollars. We have billion dollar jackpots. You know where the money for those jackpots come from? People buying the tickets. And so you have just scores of people wanting to hit that jackpot so that they don't have to work another day in their lives. I think we all relate well with Johnny Paycheck is what I'm saying. But why is this? Why is work such a negative thing? Why do we despise it so much? And what can we as Christians do to find joy and satisfaction in our work? How can we take that job and, in the words of one of the founding Berean pastors, Kurt Lehman used to say, how can we take that job and love it? That's an unforgettable sermon title, isn't it? How can we take that job and love it and see God use us at work? That's what we're going to answer today. From God's word as we develop a biblical theology of work throughout the scriptures. And my prayer is that your view of work is going to be transformed and as a result, your life will be transformed. At least one third of it or 13 years of it. Okay, so let's look first at the gift of work from Genesis 2.15. Genesis, we all know, is the book of beginnings. Genesis means origin or beginnings. And it's in Genesis that we find the origins of man and work. In Genesis chapter 2, where God has created man and he has planted a garden. That's why gardening is one of the most godly things you can do. Because God planted a garden. So... 
Genesis 2.15 says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and tend it or keep it. And so right off the bat, before Adam names all the animals, before Eve's even created, before man's ever fallen into sin, God gives man work to do. Adam is to cultivate and tend the garden. And remember, this is the perfect state of everything. I mean, there's no sin in the world yet. The ground is fertile. The plant plants are so luxuriant, I would think that that growth has to be channeled and cultivated. It's so abundant and it's flourishing so well. So in Paul's Harvey's words, God made a farmer. God needed a farmer. But take note that even in this perfect and ideal world, work was necessary. Work was a good thing. God created it as a gift to man. It's a stewardship that man exercised for God. It gave man a God-glorifying purpose. So work, our first principle here today is that work was created by God as a good thing. Henry Morris commented on this passage. He said, The ideal world is not idleness and frolic, but one with activity and service. Not idleness and frolic, but activity and and service. And I think we learned that lesson well during the COVID shutdowns, didn't we? Sitting at home and doing nothing... Or living off the government, we learned from experience, as many communities have in the world, that that sort of idea, that sort of concept where we sit around, we live off the government, creates a lot of personal and social problems. Because we were created to work, and when we're not working, we're really messed up. Sin issues are intensified. Man loses purpose, the sense of reward. I had a friend who didn't work for years back in the day, believe it or not. He just never had a steady job. And mom and dad paid for everything, even their rent, bought him a house and everything, and just sat at home and played video games. And it was interesting, one day when, when that, you know, that uh, umbilical cord was cut, and he became ind- independent, he started to work again, and it was one of the first things he said on his weekend was, man, it feels good to have a weekend because it feels like I earned it. There's a sense of reward there. So, sin, or actually work, work is a good thing for man, uh, especially for sinful man. Remember, when did King David sin? When did he commit his great sin? It wasn't When he was out working, it was when he was at home relaxing. He should have been out to war, and instead he he found himself committing the greatest sin of his life. And uh, as far as we know, but he it's good it's good for man to work, especially sinful man. In a real sense, it, it does keep man out of trouble. It keeps man out of despair from losing some so much purpose in his life, and uh, it keeps him out of unnecessary inflicted hardships. 
I get calls quite often here at the church, people looking for money, people looking for food, gas, all of that stuff. And we've helped several people, obviously, but sometimes you wonder if you're doing more hurt than help. If if you're 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 harming them more than helping them, because you don't work, you don't eat, Paul says. A lot of the stuff that people are going through, it's self-inflicted. They just want to live off the government. They don't want to work. And it's causing them a lot of personal, self-inflicted pain. Just yesterday, I learned of a gentleman who was looking for work. He wanted something to do in the evening to keep him busy. So we didn't to keep him out of trouble, keep him away from his addiction. So it's, it's a good thing. But if, if work is good, then... Why does man or society have such a negative experience with it? Why do we hate work so much? Why are we so much like Johnny Paycheck? Well, much of the reason, no doubt, has to be that we're not biblically literate anymore in our culture. We don't understand the Bible, therefore we don't understand the purpose of work. We don't even think about work being a good thing in some cases. But that doesn't totally explain it either, because even those of us who understand work is a good thing struggle with work, right? And so there's got to be another reason, and that is that paradise was lost. Paradise was lost. We see the grief of work in chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Right after Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, it says, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. So Adam was to rule over creation for God. But instead, he listened to it. He listened to the serpent, and he listened to his wife's poor advice. Let that be a warning, men, husbands out there. I'm just kidding. But he didn't do his job, did he? Adam didn't do his job. He didn't lead. He didn't lead his wife. And thus, sin entered the world. And as a result, his work became more difficult. Work became more difficult as a result of the fall into sin. It affected man and it affected creation itself. The ground was not as fertile. It was harder to cultivate. While weeds and thistles would naturally flourish, right? You don't have to plant weeds and they, they come up every year without you even cultivating them or planting them. Weeds and thistles are going to flourish, and the good and fruitful plants would now require a tremendous amount of effort to grow. You'd have to eat your bread by the sweat of your brow. But this isn't just for farmers, is it? This extends to just about every job imaginable. All Our work, our jobs are more difficult because of sin. Some jobs exist because of sin. Think about it. Think about health care and policemen and how their work exists in great part due to sin's effect on this world. When Christ returns and establishes his kingdom, 
Some, some people are going to be out of work. <laughs> They're going to be out of a job. We won't need them anymore. But sin has permeated the workplace. It's more difficult. And so now what do we do? How should we respond to work knowing that it's good but that it's difficult? How do we work in paradise lost now when our sin nature does not want to take that job and love it? Well, for that we turn to Colossians chapter 3 as we continue to, to develop this biblical theology of work. Colossians chapter 3 here, verses 22 through 4, verse 1. For context, Paul has, at this point in the letter, told us who we are in Christ, essentially. How we have a perfect standing with God, we're saved, we're rooted in Christ, and now he's in the practical. That's the doctrine, that's the orthodoxy. Of the letter, but now in the second half of the letter, like Ephesians, same overall structure, he has moved into orthopraxy, practice, how we are to live in Christ. So now that you're rooted in Christ, here's how you walk in him, in your conduct, in your personal conduct. He talks about putting off and putting on. He talks about how Christians are to live with regards to their speech, how we are to operate in the church. How we are to operate in the home between husband and wife and children and parents. And then also, lastly here, in the, the workplace in verses 22 through 4, one, He says, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service, as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do... Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Now masters, grant grant to your slaves justice and fairness knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So at first glance, it doesn't appear like this applies to us because we don't relate to that master-slave relationship very well. Thank you to the influence of Christianity, right? Wherever it went, it just kind of killed that. But there was blatant slavery in the Roman Empire, in Paul's day. And it is a very complex issue to study or discuss. Upwards of 40% of the population were slaves, 40%. They were as dependent upon slaves as modern society is upon machinery. Remember, they were the machinery back then. So I sometimes wondered this week if modern machinery was an answer to prayer to end slavery. But we know that in many ways the slavery of the Roman Empire was different than we think of in American history. Because in the, in the warring of empires back then, nations at war, empires at war, when you conquered another people, you would subjugate them. They would become your servants if you 
weren't going to annihilate them. And that was honestly a very unhelpful thing to do, to just annihilate a people, then you just create a vacuum there. There's, it's just not good for that empire. So they would often enslave the people, and many of the people who were enslaved just continued to do what they were skilled in doing. If they were a doctor, they served the Roman Empire as a doctor. If they were a lawyer, they continued to serve as a lawyer, as a librarian, as an architect, etc. And so... Um, some of these folks, even though they were considered slaves or servants, they had a pretty, gr- pretty good life. Pretty great life, actually. Continuing to do what they did before. And, however, some didn't have a very great life. It just depended upon the character of your master that you ended up with. Dr. Thomas Constable wrote this. He said, slaves in the Roman Empire were sometimes similar to domestic servants in Victorian Britain. That is, they were often honored members of a household. However, in other families, slaves were treated no better than tools. So it just kind of depends on the family you ended up with, the master you had. We know too in the Old Testament, in the Jewish culture there, that contractual slavery existed. If you owed someone money and you didn't pay it off or couldn't pay it off, you'd work for them. You'd agree to work for them. You became their indentured servant until you paid it off. And then you could also willingly become someone's servant or slave. If that master treated you well and you thought, I've got a pretty good life here, I like the way they treat me and I want to continue to work for this guy, you'd, you'd pierce your ear, right, with an awl up against the doorpost or and you'd, you would become voluntarily their servant, their bond servant. And so slavery is a complex issue, but the point is that it was part of the normal social fabric in Paul's day. And when Paul wrote this, and by the way, this letter, Colossians traveled with the letter of Philemon, There was an issue between Philemon and Onesimus, right? Master and slave. But you have to think that Paul writes this letter to a church where there's slaves and masters sitting in the audience together. And he's teaching them how to operate now that they're in Christ. And while none of us us are slaves or masters, there are principles here that carry over into the employee-employer relationship. That's the best way we could think of it. These, these principles carry over into our work life and the employee-employer relationship, or any relationship with authority and submission in it. But first we see some admonitions from Paul first for the slave or the employee. We're going to look at some principles for um, both the employee and for the employer. And the first one is just to be obedient. That's verse 22. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. So simply put, do what you're told. All the bosses out there are going, yes, the managers. Do what you're told. That's what you're there for. You're there to work. You're there to do what you're told to do. Insofar as your master's instructions don't cause you to go against God's will, Do what they say. Some people want to balk 
at everything that their boss tells them to do. And it's not helpful for them. It doesn't make for a good workplace environment. And it's not helpful for the boss. It's just hard on them too. Many of the Christian slaves at this time, I have to think, were feeling probably a little bit elevated. Liberated, we might say. Thinking, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. I'm going to rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom. So, why should I listen to this guy anymore? Or maybe the slave felt like this. I feel like the Lord is maybe... I know the boss said this or that, to do this or that, but I kind of feel the Lord leading me to do something different. I know he sent me on this task, but I want to go over here and maybe share the gospel with such and such person. Well, I can see some spiritual slaves saying that. I don't know about you. And Paul is saying to that slave, look, God's will is right where he has you in that moment, and you need to obey your master out of reverence for Christ. That is your ministry, (laughs) okay? To not obey your boss in that culture or in our culture would ruin your testimony because you're there to work. and, And being a hard worker is part of your witness, okay? I can imagine another slave who might say, you don't know my boss, though. My boss is harsh. He's unreasonable. Well, Peter says, I'm glad you mentioned that. 1 Peter 2.18 Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So if the situation you're in as as an employee is unjust, your boss is unreasonable. Paul says, remember, Peter says, remember that God God doesn't forget you. He knows what you're going through, and it finds favor with him. And not only that, but we can get the principle from 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2, the wife living under the authority of an unjust husband, that you might just win your boss to Christ by your obedience. You might just win them for Christ by the way you suffer in your Christ-likeness. That is Christ-like, to suffer unjustly without retaliating. And what's, what's more important? That's, that, that is what's important. We're about people. We're about people coming to know Jesus Christ. And the way in which we work, the way in which we operate as employees even in an unjust work environment, we have an opportunity to be a light in the world. It's a pretty neat thing. The second principle is to be diligent. Paul says, please them all the time, not just when they're watching you, not just when they have their eye on you. If you're a Christian, your boss should not have to keep an eye on you, checking in on you to make sure you're, you're working peeking around the corner to see if you're still working, you should be their most trusted employee. Their most trusted employee. They can trust you not to steal anything, not to steal time, not to steal stuff from their company, but to put in a full day's work. We've, I think, all been at the workplace, at least I have, and, and 
people say something like, quick, the boss ain't looking. And they go and do something else. Or the boss isn't looking, let's take a break, right? Take the gloves off, put the shovel down, whatever it is. How do you respond to that in that situation? There was a recent poll taken where employees admitted to taking longer breaks than needed or allowed, wasting more than two hours daily at work. By playing games, probably on their phones, checking messages and social media. And it resulted in a decrease in the uh, productivity and an increase in injuries, as you can imagine. Probably a lot of texting while driving stuff. But instead, Paul says here, whatever you do, do your work heartily. Do it with sincerity of heart. Work hard. Put your heart into it. More literally in the Greek, put some soul into it. Put your soul into it. Care about what you're doing. Don't just do it for the paycheck. Do it with some excellence. Do it with some enthusiasm. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to have the, you know, the best college degree. Just model Christ well by working hard. Show up on time. Be well rested. That's a big thing, by the way. Be well rested. Go to bed on time so that when you wake up, you have the energy to work hard the next day. Show up, be well rested, show some enthusiasm. I know I sound like your boss right now, I'm sorry, but Paul's my boss, and God's his boss, and so I'm just passing down the orders. But one of my managers used to say, there shouldn't be any flies on you. There shouldn't be any flies on you. You should be diligent. For Christians, I would say, do a little bit more than what's required of you. Do a little bit more. Do a little bit more than what's expected. Learn ways to improve something or be more efficient. An employee like that is so refreshing in the world that we're living in. Christians, we can really stand out in this world by working hard right now, can't we? I'll let J. Vernon McGee do the heavy lifting for me this morning. He said, if you are lazy on the job, you are not dedicated to Jesus Christ. He can say that because he was writing a commentary and he wasn't speaking to an audience. But I can pass on his word. If you are lazy on the job, you are not dedicated to Jesus Christ. That one stings a bit. But the next quality is for the masters and the employers. Paul says, be fair. Be fair. Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. In other words, the buck doesn't stop with you, masters. You, as a Christian employer, need to remember you have a master with a capital M in heaven. And because of that, that should affect the way that you treat your slaves. The way you treat your employees, namely with justice and fairness. And we looked at this in Romans 2 recently, that God doesn't show partiality. He doesn't show favoritism. You know, both the CEO of Walmart and the janitor who shines the floors at night are both going to stand before God as equals. And they're going to be treated without favoritism. So, different levels in earthly society, but equal before God. And Christian employers need to treat employees like they're a person. 
with fairness, not just a number on the payroll. In Paul's day, that probably included providing decent living quarters and time to rest, if not releasing them altogether from forced labor. I think you see a hint of that in Philemon, in the book of Philemon. Releasing them from forced labor, giving them the option to continue to serve you. It means paying them what they deserve to be paid and paying them on time. I'm reminded of James 5.4. He says, look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, the Lord of armies. So as an employer, you have a serious responsibility to pay your employees what is fair, what is right, and to pay them on time. And if you don't, God hears their cries. God's aware of that. The fourth quality of a Christian worker answers the ultimate question that we have today. How can Christians overcome the negative attitude towards work and instead find joy and satisfaction at work? How can we take the job and love it? And that is, number four, that we can be worshipful at work. Verse 23 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. It's an act of worship. Verse 24 says, It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. Not just the man. And that's the answer, that ultimately, no matter what job we do, no matter what boss we serve, earthly boss we serve, we are ultimately doing it for our heavenly boss. We're doing it for the Lord. Not just for that paycheck, not just for that wife that left me, right? Left me and took all the reasons I was working for. Not just for your master, it's for the Lord. Imagine him as your all-seeing supervisor with a capital S. He's the all-seeing supervisor. He sees at all times. And understanding that concept right there can take even the most menial task, like cleaning tables or washing dishes or changing diapers, and it can take it and it can, it can give you a God-glorifying purpose-giving, eternally rewarding perspective. It take, that task becomes something God-glorifying, purpose-giving, and eternally rewarding. It becomes a ministry and an act of worship. That's an amazing thing. King Solomon, he's, he's the wise man of the Old Testament. He's the sage God gave wisdom to, and he said that Life under the sun, he talked a lot about work, but he said life under the sun with, without God is vanity. It is going to be just nothing but burdensome toil. It's horrible. <laughs> it's something to be despaired of, like Johnny Paycheck. But he said this, life with God in it and with eternity in mind, work becomes something good. It becomes something rewarding. He said, here's what I have seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself and all one's labor, in which he labors under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given them, for this is his reward. He also said that the man who enjoys his work 
doing it for the Lord, isn't going to consider often the years of his life because he's preoccupied with the joy that God's given him in his heart. All of this really does put an end then to the sacred-secular debate. Whatever you do, it's worship. It's something that you're doing for Jesus out of worship. And I don't know about you, but I think it's funny. Sometimes you can tell, can't you, when someone is doing their job for the Lord or not. It is funny how often you run into someone, in a, a, it could be a waitress, it could be a nurse, whoever it is, but you can tell there's something different about this person. Their job is not fun, but they, there's no reason why they should love it, but they're doing it and they have joy. It's the way they're going about it with kindness and joy. and it's just There's something about them that's untouchable. And it's that they're doing it for God's glory. They choose to love that job for God's glory. You know, back in the day when I was on the railroad, Cleaning locomotives sometimes. They, I was a laborer on the railroad. It's not a very nice term, I don't think. What do you do for a living? I'm a laborer. Makes me think of a salt mine, okay? Throwing a pickaxe. But as a laborer, you did many jobs, and one of them was coach cleaning. And nobody wanted to clean coaches. That was basically... It's where you drive this pickup around and you go around to the different trains out in the yard and you clean the cab on the locomotives that the engineer and the conductor sit in. And you had to do several things like sweep the floor, you sweep the cab, right? You change the trash bags out, you give them new trash bags, you, you dump the toilet if the toilet needs dumped, and you clean the windshield, basically. And you restock things that they need. Well, as you can imagine, no one really wanted to dump the toilet, because those things are nasty. Okay? And so what you would do, more often than not, is you'd just take a spray bottle and you'd squirt the top with some Windex and wipe it off and call it good. Or you'd, you wouldn't even bother with the windshield. You might squirt the windshield with your, from a distance and turn the windshield wipers on. And uh, it's, it, it wasn't a glorious task, I'll tell you that. Because to dump the toilets, it took a lot of time and it's disgusting. And that hose is up here above your head and sometimes they leak, okay? And you did not want to get that on you. And uh, then you'd have to dump the truck and it was just... To dump a toilet, you were going to spend 30 minutes doing it. And then to get on the windshield, to do the windshield on a locomotive, I don't, you re- I don't know if you realize this, but they are 16 feet tall. You got to climb up there on the nose of that locomotive, 15 feet or so, with a harness on that's really difficult to put on. And then you got to hook up, and you're leaning over the edge of that locomotive's nose, trying to clean the windshield over here. And uh, it's just awkward, especially in the winter time when it's bitter cold. It's just not fun. But I'll tell you what. I came to Christ when I was on the railroad, and I became a born-again Christian on the railroad. And I dumped a lot more toilets and cleaned a lot more windshields for the glory of the Lord after I became a Christian. I was dumping toilets for God's glory, as if he was the one who was going to be the engineer conductor on that train. And I couldn't tell you how many engineers or conductors... We're so thankful that someone actually came and did 
their job. And they said, I've never seen anyone clean a cab like that. Thank you. And I said, praise the Lord on the inside. That's the difference Christ can make in your life. And it was rewarding. The last principle is be patient. Remember, there's eternal rewards for being a faithful slave or master. From the Lord, you will receive the reward. From the Lord, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Imagine that, a slave with an inheritance. They usually didn't receive an inheritance. You will receive an inheritance in the Lord. God will reward you. So remember that when you feel overworked, when you feel underpaid. Your ultimate promotion, your ultimate compensation doesn't come in this life. It comes in the the next, in glory. And work is something that we're going to do forever. My dad couldn't stand the thought of farming in the afterlife. But I don't know how biblical his theology was on work. Work is something we're going to do forever. Revelation 22.3 says, His servants will serve him. He's talking about the new heaven and earth in that passage. We're going to work. We're going to serve him. And uh, I believe in that this life is preparation for service in Christ's millennial kingdom and his return, that 1,000-year reign, and then in the eternal state on the new heaven and new earth. So we want to be faithful in this life and in the next. It's going to be great. I'm going to farm that new heaven and earth like nobody's business. Like Adam farmed in that garden. And I won't have to have a four-wheeler with a sprayer on the back spraying thistle. I get so tired of that every year. But you can do it for the glory of the Lord, right? We're going to work hard. We're going to do things we love forever. Work is going to be more rewarding. It's going to, we're going to have more creativity. I'm convinced we're going to have more passion. We're going to put some more soul into it. It's going to be sweet. We're going to do it for his glory. So let's, let's take our jobs and let's love them now for God's glory so that people see the difference that Christ makes in our life. Thank you.